says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our eternal satisfaction, our eternal identity is found in you. It is not by the curse given to us by sin. It is not by the schemes of the enemy, Lord, but that you, the sovereign God, can make new that which is broken, that which is distorted. God, that the final word is in your hands, and we entrust ourselves to you for all who believe. No matter what the enemy preaches to us, no matter what uh, circumstance in our life may tell us about ourselves, God, you give us our identity, you give us our hope. It is in you in whom we rest. So we look to you to be our teacher this morning, to be the very illuminator of your own word, and that you would be glorified in this time. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me again. So, <clears throat> I got a call yesterday, which is uh, pretty normal. Uh, in my three years of being on staff at his hill, there is um, a joke that John and I have in the back. It's, our offices are separated by, uh, from Charlie's office, and so we can make little jokes here and there. And one little joke that we like to make is, you know, in the morning, you just never know what your agenda will actually show. You have a lot of things written on it. Maybe you have one class you're going to teach. Maybe you have two classes you're going to teach. Maybe you have no classes you're going to teach. But at staff meeting that morning, you're not going by your agenda. Every day you go by what staff meeting says and what Charlie asks. And so there have been multiple occasions where we get to staff meeting in the morning, 8.30. Charlie says, well, guys, I need to leave today. So I was thinking, Connor, you can teach all my classes. And you think, it's not a question. This is the new schedule. <laughs> okay. The Lord will supply. Be ready in season and out of season is uh, one thing I've been learning a lot at His Hill. And one thing I actually teach our students in a speaking methods class, I say, is like, you know, always be ready in season and out of season. You have no idea what opportunity the Lord will bring before you to proclaim His word. You really have no idea when it could, when it, when it could come up. And that was again revealed to me yesterday. I was uh, getting ready with my wife and I. We had tickets for the rodeo, and we were going to go out and uh, spend a day with a couple of our friends on a, on a double date. And as we're heading out, my phone rings. And every time Charlie calls, I think it's a prank, or either like a, a pocket dial or something is happening. He doesn't actually mean to call me. And so I kind of always pick up kind of ex- half expectingly, say, Connor, I'm sick. I'm getting sicker by the minute. I wonder if you could fill in and preach for me. Okay. <laughs> you know, there is something uh, that was on my heart. It took a while to kind of figure it out uh, when I was in the car and I was at the rodeo. What has the Lord been showing me? What has he been teaching me? And it's actually been one thing that I've uh, been sharing with the second years uh, in the Gospel of John in chapter 11. And 
this morning with, with chapter 11 is really what God's been, been sharing with me. kind of picks up on what I uh, preached on last time I was here. I know you all have razor-sharp memories, so you automatically can remember that I preached on John 10 and the Good Shepherd. I know that about you, so I was just to reiterate that. But yeah, last time I was here was John 10, the Good Shepherd, and specifically verse 11. I am the Good Shepherd, and the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that is the heart of the God in whom we have placed our faith, that it is an intimate God who is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He knows us by name, but more than that, he loves us as the good shepherd. He loves his sheep. He loves his people. And he would lay down his life for ours so that we may have abundant life. Augustine had a I had a quote that I think summarizes it well, and it's a lot of things. We, we, we paraphrase this, this quote a lot. And it's, if you were the only person on the earth that was suffering in your sin, if you were the only one affected, you out there, if you were the only one, Christ would have still come and died for you. And that is the intimacy of our God. The individuality of our God. He does not just love the world, the grand picture that is, but he loves you, his creation. He loves you, who you were made in his image. And he would have still come and have suffered the trials, suffered the scorn, suffered the humiliation, suffered the cross for your sin, you, individually. That is the heart of our God for one soul, one creation, one individual. It reminds me of the parable in Luke 15, in verse 4. Jesus says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And that is the pursuit of our God. And so when I was sharing this passage uh, with our second years, I was struck with the, just the personal intimacy of Jesus. A lot like what I was sharing with you guys last time I was here in John 10, but now in a very practical and in a proofed way with Lazarus, his friend, whom he loves. And so that's really what I want to share with you guys in in John 11. What I hope that we can walk away with today is that every single one of us in this room has this relationship with the shepherd, has this availability with God himself, with this Jesus who pursued one man, he is also pursuing you individually. And how that looks is what we're going to hopefully get into and and see more of in this time. So chapter 11, there's a couple things uh, just in context I want to share that um, we know from the harmony of the Gospels uh, which is a great resource to, to always have on hand, that happens in between chapter 10 and chapter 11. John in his book is, is not as structured and um, systematized as maybe Luke, who is before him. And so he takes kind of big chunks and records these things. So there are a couple of things I want to share with you guys in between chapter 10 and 11 that we need to turn to Matthew chapter 16 to see. So if you flip to Matthew 16 with me, 
We're going to start in verse 21. It's a couple of hard words that Jesus gives to his disciples. Matthew 16, starting in verse 21, he says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and, and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Again, this is, this is their teacher. This is the one in whom Peter, John, Matthew, all these 12 have left and they've dropped everything, all their vocations, their families, their homes, and they have followed this man, this teacher, this one in whom they have nowhere else to go. They're following him with their life. And he says, but I'm going to the cross. That's my timetable. That's my agenda. I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed, to be scorned, to be ridiculed by these men. And I'm sure the disciples are standing there, as, as John Forrest said so well from John 14, of just in confusion of how can these things be? That you're going where? To do what? For who? Many questions that arise. And they're hard words from Jesus. And they only get harder, actually. Because then he picks up in verse 24 again and says to his disciples, And if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And he himself take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Not only is their teacher going to the cross, but then he says, if you wish to be a disciple of mine, to truly follow me, then you will follow me with your own cross. You will bear your own cross and come with me. For he who loses his life for my sake, he will find it. So a lot of hard words that Jesus has been telling his disciples before he spends time just intimately with them. Before he enters into Jerusalem... These are kind of his, his, his last words to the many that are around him. Now, we know some people hear these words, and it's too much for them, and they leave him. And he turns to the twelve and says, Will you also leave me? John 6. And his disciples say to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we see a glimmer there of this hope and this reality. Even though Christ is speaking hard words to them, you know, words that don't seem to give life very much. They say, in you, if we have come to know you personally, you are worth it, Jesus. You are worth my life. You are worth everything that you're asking of me. To whom else will we go? So all these things are said before coming into Jerusalem, before the trial, before the accusations, before the cross. And John 11 will be a great and powerful reminder to them. And a promise that he gives his disciples, followed by one of the greatest signs he has yet to give them, that though it looks bad, and though it's going to be hard, and this life is full of difficulties, it is worth it. I am worth following. So, with that said, flip back over to John 11. And we're going to pick up in our text. It says, Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. 
So in a unique way, John picks up on a passage that he actually hasn't said anything about yet. This, this activity that's happening with Mary anointing the Lord with ointment and wiping his feet with her hair, it actually happens in John chapter 11. And so we kind of take a step back and say, what's happening here? Why does he say this like we should know this? And it's because the Gospel of John was written, we think about 50 years, 55 years after the ascension of Jesus, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this story of Mary anointing Jesus before his death with this costly perfume, it would have been known around the entire church. This story would have been recognized, that people would have known this in these churches. Jesus himself says in Matthew, in that exact passage, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And so this is an account that many people would have known. They would have, they would have known Mary. They would have known her uh, action with Jesus. They would have known Martha. And they would have known Lazarus. And so, picking back up the story, that's who these people are. And the problem that we first encounter here is sickness. Lazarus. The one whom Jesus loved He is sick. And I want to pause here for a second and talk about sickness. This is a problem. And sickness, death, disease, this was not something that God created this world and created his creation to know. Sickness is a problem. And oftentimes, we can look at sickness as just a normality. This is just something that we have to put up with. This is something that as soon as we open up the news, as soon as we turn on the TV, as soon as we open up the paper, we see all sorts of sickness, disease, war, uh, fighting, destruction. And the problem of sin is everywhere. And we can oftentimes be calloused to that. That this is just a normal thing happening in our world that we just have to get through. That's not the way God sees sin. Sin is not just normal for God. The problem of sin, it is evident far and it is near to us. Like I said, we open up the newspaper, we open up our TVs, and we see what's happening around the world, and the problem of evil is happening all over this nation and the nations surrounding us. But it's also near. And we know sickness. You know pain. You know loss. You know the things that sin has created in this world that God did not intend, that God did not create. So sin, the problem of sin is also, it is near to us. But it is not something that should be normal to us. It's not something that we should just overlook, that we just have to get through, that we have to put up with, that we have to grit our teeth and just power through. This is how God sees sin. Finishing verse 3 and 4, it says, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not, is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. So one thing we see already through this passage is Jesus' intimacy with those whom he loves. He says already, and they've already noted, the one whom you love, Lazarus, he's sick. 
Down in verse 11, Jesus is going to say, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. In verse 36, when the people are weeping and they see him weep, they say, look, see how he loved him. Again, it's that individuality that Jesus loves you, that he pursues you. He's the good shepherd who knows you by name. He knows the problem of sin in your life and does not just want you to get through the sin, does not just want us to put up with the sin, but wants to use this sickness, this disease, this evil that the enemy means for death. He wants to use that in your life, in his greater sovereignty, to produce and to show you his surpassing greatness. Death, sickness, and sin is not the end for us. It is not the period upon our life. It is not the final say. John 3.16, we all know, should know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We often see that verse. We tell that verse to people. We share that verse. We write that verse. We memorize that verse. And we we tell people about the grandeur, the great love of God. But often we forget that that great love is for us too. It is, it is to meet us in our problem of sin. That is why God sent his son, is to answer that problem of evil. Yes, God created and it was good. Yes, sin corrupted. But that's not the end. But God. And we see that 44 times throughout the New Testament. But God, and that's the activity of God. That is God taking what was distorted, what was messed up, what was broken, and saying, this is not the end. I am still working. I am still at work in this, in his created and redemptive, his restorative power. And so he sends us his son, Jesus, to answer the problem of sin with the provision of salvation. The problem of of sin, of sickness, is going to be answered with the provision of salvation that's going to end in the glory of God. If you flip back over one page with me to John 9, something very similar has happened in John 9 with the man born blind. John 9, starting in verse 1, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind. How did this happen to him? Jesus answered and said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And these two passages remind me, God is not the creator and the author of evil so that he can show his goodness. No, he's actually more sovereign than that. And he takes what the enemy means for evil, what the enemy means for harm, the man who is born blind, Lazarus, who is have a sickness come on to him. He says, now I'm going to use that that's happened for an even greater good. This is not in order that, but rather he is taking what has happened, the, the sin that is a curse upon us all, And he says that this isn't the end. I'm going to show something greater by this 
contrast. I'm going to show myself greater in the midst of this trial. Not just removing us out of it, but meeting you in the midst of trial. And that is God's heart for his people. It is redemptive. It is restorative. It takes that which is broken, torn apart, and it reconstructs. It brings it back to its original design. It doesn't just say, too bad. Get through it. See you one day. But it takes and meets us in the middle of our brokenness and bring us back to original design that he has for us. So this passage here, verse 4, it really is the principle throughout this whole chapter here. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Sin does not have our authority, but it is God who's going to use this to give us an even greater identity in it. So this passage is, it is somewhat of a, of a double foreshadow that's, that's going on here. There's two things that Jesus is foreshadowing uh, by this statement. One, he's going to tell his disciples, whatever you're about to see, whenever we come into this village, when we come to this family, whatever you see, remember, this isn't the end. This is not the end for Lazarus. Remember that. But then at the same time, this is the, the second part here, remember that death, the enemy's greatest tool, death itself, is not the end. Remember that when I go to the cross. That death is not the end. The enemy has not won. He does not have the final say over our lives. So that's the two foreshadowing ideas that Jesus is giving in this statement. So now moving on here, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, I, I read that, those two verses together. He loved them. And so when he heard that he's sick, he hopped on a camel and he drugged that thing and just beat it so that he could get there as soon as he possibly could because that's how much he loved him. It says he stayed two days longer. And I think, man, those, those two don't seem to really add up together. He loved him and so he waits for a sickness. And then after, he says, now, let us go to Judea again. And I appreciate this, that Jesus' his, his purpose in healing is never meant to be a patterned way. If you notice, Jesus did not have, does never have, he never has to be there to heal someone. John 4, the nobleman, he says, go, your son's been healed. It's already, it's already taken place. He doesn't have to be there at the, at the very last second, right before he breathes his final breath and just reaches out and touches him and says, oh, the drama, the suspense, right? He doesn't, work, he doesn't work through that. He doesn't need to work through that. Sometimes he comes to a person and he speaks, go to the waters, let the waters heal you. Go, let me create this, this clay and, and touch on your eyes and then you'll be better. There is no pattern in which Jesus heals People, but every single time it is to bring us to the point where he is operating not out of a human conditional need. He is operating out of the will of his father. He is on his father's timetable. And so he waits two days. And as John 11 verse 17 says, when he came, 
he had already found that he had been in the tomb for four days. And so many commentaries say that day the messenger got to Jesus, Lazarus had already died. And so it was already, not that he needed to be there to heal him. But really, as verse 14 says, so Jesus said to the disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there, because it's so that you may believe, so that you may see even more the glory of God that is to come in something that looks so dark, so deep, so bad. God's goodness is going to shine all the more. So, verse 7 now. He says, let us go to Judea again. That's a problem because the disciples say to him, Rabbi, the Jews who are just seeking to stone you are there. And you're going to go there again? Hmm. Jesus answered them and says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Again, Jesus operating out of the divine uh, prerogative of God, his Father. He's not worried about what man may do unto him. He is held, he is known, and he is loved by the Father. And so he does the will of the Father. That's that idea of walking in the light. When we are walking in the light, we do not stumble. Whatever happens to us will not be the end of us. But if anyone's walking in the night, apart from the will of the Father, he will stumble, he will fall. The light is not in him. And so he says to them, guys, listen, our friend Lazarus, he's fallen asleep. And I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. It's fine. He has sisters. They'll wake him up. They're loud. We don't need to wake him up for that. Jesus had spoken of his death, not of just a physical sleep. They were thinking he was speaking of a literal Sleep. So Jesus said to him plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go. Again, the heart of God. It, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. It's going to look bad. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get nasty when he raises Lazarus, when he goes into Jerusalem. But that is the love of the Father. That is the love of Christ that he is given as the good shepherd. No matter what's going to happen, the sickness is not going to end in death, but for the glory of God. And so Thomas's attitude, I, you know, John mentioned that when he was preaching a couple weeks ago. I appreciate it. He really, I think, lives out Matthew 16. Let us go so that we may all die with him. And that really is indicative of the disciples' faith at this point. I mean, if, if that's what they believe that's all is going to happen here, it is a good thing that they waited to see Lazarus' resurrection. Because they're at a pretty low point. They're at a pretty low spot hearing that Jesus is going to go to the cross, and then they themselves will need to take up their cross too. Jesus says, I'm, where we're going in Bethany is going to be good for you. This is going to be encouraging for your faith. This is going to help you and meet you in this distress. And Thomas shows that pretty plainly himself there. And so now the reality of the problem comes. In verse 17 says, Jesus came and he found that Lazarus had been dead in the tomb for four days. Verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. And Mary stayed in the house. 
Martha then said to him, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Now I want to pause here um, and, and look at Martha's response. There's going to be two responses uh, that Martha makes. And I, I kind of see them as two opposite ends of a pendulum. The first one here is Martha in her response to Jesus. And this is how she sees this problem. God, if you were just here when the problem happened, we wouldn't have this mess. We wouldn't be in this kind of situation. We wouldn't need any kind of help. If you had just been here on time, we wouldn't be in this problem. Now, I don't know if you've ever said that to God, but I know I have. God, if you had just been there in my life, this wouldn't have happened. Now, a lot of times that's, that's really before I knew the Lord. But maybe that can even be a temptation to think, even if we know the Lord. We look back on our past. We say all the, and we, we see the evil. We see the sin that's happened, that has happened to us. We say, God, where were you? If this wouldn't have happened, if you would have been here, if you would have just been shining forth, this wouldn't have happened to me. Now, this, is a, this is a very real place to be. I, on Wednesdays, go with a couple of our students to uh, what's called the Hill Country Youth Ranch. It's in Ingram, Texas. And it's a, the best way I can kind of describe it is a, it's a holding facility uh, for the government that takes children, boys and girls, out of homes in which there has been uh, mental, physical, sexual, psychological, whatever you want to call it, abuse. And they, the CPS has, has seen this house, these houses as unworthy of living for these kids, and they've taken them, and they've put them in these homes on this ranch while the CPS workers work out their cases to figure out where can we put these kids that it will be safe. I was a student at his hill, and that was my outreach for two years. Now on staff, I've been there for two years, four years total. And I've had this conversation, what Martha just has said, with multiple kids. And that's a hard conversation to have. The hardest conversations with them is where was God in the midst of that trauma? Why didn't God show up? If you tell me God loves me, where was he? If you tell me God's my father, why didn't he save me? Why didn't he bring me out of that? And these are kids, you know, from from 10 years old to about 14 years old. Sometimes we have kids that are eight. And they've seen things, experienced things that I don't know if any of us can attest to. But it's very real. That's a very real question that they need answered for them. Now, I can't relate to that kind of depth, but I myself have asked this question in life with my parents and the divorce there. And it was in fifth grade. I asked God, where are you? And why can't you just fix this problem? If you were just here, if you were just present, this problem wouldn't be a problem anymore. And that was a question that was questioned all the way up until Bible school. And it was the second semester of Bible school where I was out in the gym at his hill. And and God really brought this problem to surface in light. And this is where I think I want to take this here and what God is saying. He brought me down to the gym and we were dealing with with that problem that was happening in life. And he just gave me a couple words. I've shared these with the students. But it was, I'm not done yet. I'm not finished with this. 
Though we live in a corrupted and a fallen and a sinful world. That is the reality of this world we live in. Fallen, corrupted, and it's sinful. But we don't derive our identity from that world. From this world that we live in. This, whatever's happened to us, whatever has happened to us in the past, whatever the enemy wants to transplant onto you, that is not God's final say with that. God is so sovereign. That is who he is. That is his character. That he can take that which is so dark, so broken, so distorted, and he can use that and take that and heal, mold, reshape, restructure for good. Not to say that we, just, we gloss over that like nothing happened. That's not, that's not true. But God's surpassing greatness meets us in that depth. And that's what makes his glory shine when he heals so much more, so much greater, so much bigger in these problems. So we live in a fallen world. We derive this from the, you know, we, that's the enemy's plans to, to put that lie upon us, that that's all we are. But we don't, as believers, born again Christians, derive our value and our identity from this fallen world. The sickness is not going to end in death. It's not over yet. And I, I really think about that, and, and, and I go back with, the, with my boys at the youth ranch, and I tell them about Joseph. And I tell them about the story of Joseph, and we walk through that, and that's a story that's just near and dear to my heart. And at the very end of the book of Genesis, he's able to say to his brothers that have done this to him, such evil, what you meant for evil, what you meant for my harm, for my destruction, God has taken and turned it for my good. So that I may be in a place where I could save lives. And that whole story of Genesis uh, that, that is recorded there of Joseph is really a, just a wonderful cross-reference for this chapter, for the problem of sin, that God is not bound to sin. He is not controlled by sin. Sin shapes and shifts to him. And there's nothing beyond his control to change and to restore for good. So Jesus' reply in John 11, after this living in the past, he says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, oh, I know. I know that he'll, he'll rise again. But he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so the pendulum has swung from living in the past to now kind of this living in the future, period. There's still the problem but the problem will just, it'll, we'll have to get through it because one day in the future, this will all be right. This will all be made better. But what about right now? You know, what do we do with life today in the midst of the problem? You know, how many times have we told ourselves, we just got to get through this. Just got to make it. Got to grit our teeth, just bear it. And then one day in heaven, it'll be better. And I don't want to take any glory away from that because what is awaiting us for those who have placed our faith in Christ, it is an incredible, eternal glory that awaits. But if it's just one day, if that's just what it's going to be one day, I'm struggling today. You know, Martha and Mary, they're struggling today in this sickness. What about now? You know, I can't imagine our God... When we, when we bring our cares, our worries, our anxieties to him, says, don't worry, 
Goodness will come. But it will come in the future. Until then, good luck. Until then, I'll see you in heaven, but until then, good luck up there. That's not our God. That is not who Jesus wants us to believe about our God. And that's verse 25, and that's the climax of this passage. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So his response to Martha in these two opposite areas of the past, living in the past or living in the future, he says, I am today the resurrection and the life. I am what is needed Right now. And that's the I am statement that goes all the way back to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Who do I tell him that you are? I am who I am. We're not, he's not just bound to one thing. I'm not just love. I'm not just grace. I'm not just truth. That would, that would limit him. I am who I am. I am this eternal present tense in this life. I'm not just working in the past and I'm not just in the future. I am right now in the present with you. I am the resurrection and the life. And so that resurrection is the final resurrection is what he's speaking of. The final resurrection on the last day for, for believers that through Christ, because he is, because he lives, he is present, he always will be, that that resurrection, it will happen. That will be the case. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's a promise. To believe is to be saved for eternity. That's more than that. It's the life today. He is the life now. Warren Wiersbe just gives a great uh, response to this. He says, Jesus is taking the Jewish teaching of resurrection out of a theory and into a person, a living person. He says, when you are sick, you want a doctor, not a medical book or even a manual. You want a doctor. When you are sued, you want a lawyer who will fight for you. You don't want to be given the Texas Code of Law and Order. And you probably don't even want to be given a DVD case full of the, of the show, Law and Order. That doesn't help us. We need a lawyer who knows these things. And likewise, when you face the enemy and all of his curses and even the greatest curse of death, you want a Savior, not a doctrine written in a book, not a future, not a past. You want a Savior that lives today. Major Ian Thomas in one of his famous coined sentences says, if you are born again, all you need is what you have. And what you have is all of God. Hmm. That's, all, that's how he'd always end his little phrases. Well, hmm. If you are born again, all you need is what you have. And what you have is all of God. And that is today. That he is our life. He is your present rock and refuge. He is your present patience in the midst of difficulties. He is your joy in the midst of pain. He is the healer from every arrow of the enemy. He is your supply for all that has been lost. He is your salvation and eternal life that has begun today. This is the ministry and the heart of the good shepherd. He doesn't just wait and look back in the past as if things could be different. 
but he takes the things of the past and turns them into good in the present. He doesn't just wait for heaven one day with you. But again, as Major was so fond of saying, that Christ did not just come to bring you to heaven, but to bring heaven to you today. To put heaven into you today. And that's the mystery that's been hidden from ages past. Christ in you. The hope of glory. And his end is, do you believe this? What a dagger. Right? That's my application. And that's Jesus' application. Do you believe this? In your past? In what you're facing today? In the problem of sin that is clashing against you? Are you waiting for the future and just trying to get through this? Or are you living in the past saying, I wish things were different? When Jesus is here, available, says, I am, right now, the resurrection and the life. This eternal life has started now, today. I'm the all in all sufficiency. And Martha's response to that, as I pray, is our response today, is, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And that wording there, I have believed, um, in the Greek is the perfect tense of that. It is, yes, Lord, I have believed, and I will continue to believe. So I have believed in what's happening right now, but whatever comes before me, whatever comes next, I will believe that you are eternally worthy, eternally Sufficient for all my issues and sins. Now, just to end on the very last part here of John 11 is what actually happens with Lazarus. We, we probably need to know. If you've never read this chapter, he comes to Mary. Mary has the same kind of issue. Why weren't you here? If you were here, my brother would not have died. <clears throat> and Jesus, who, as Isaiah 53, 3 says... He's a man who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He identifies with our hurts. He's the good shepherd who knows us. Jesus weeping, his, his heart troubled by the schemes of the enemy, by the power of sin, is troubled and he weeps for Lazarus, the one he loves. So the people are saying, wow, this man truly loves him. Verse 38, Jesus again being deeply moved within comes to the tomb and it was a cave and the stone was lying against it and Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, I did not say, or did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around me, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and in his face was wrapped around him with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's not going to end in death. No matter how bad it looks. No matter the reality of the problem. See, Jesus, I told you. He actually was dead. You said it wasn't going to end in death. Jesus says, wait. Wait. I am not defined 
by sin. We are not defined by sin. Sin does not have the final say upon us. Lazarus, come forth. And the man, not necessarily resurrected, for it is appointed for man to die once. So he wasn't brought back from the dead, more resuscitated, because the Jews will seek to kill him again. I could not imagine a more welcoming kind of response by people. Hey, you're alive again. And now we need to kill him again. Man, it's tough. But Jesus, in this, I just wanted to close with this last, with this last point. By doing this, and, and Tim Keller makes a, a, just a good observation on this, by interrupting Lazarus' funeral was really to cause his own. See, after this, many of the Jews came to the Pharisees and told them the things that he had done. And that's getting into the next part of chapter 11 there, the conspiracy to kill Jesus. Now they were gung-ho. There was nothing that was going to stop them. We had, they had to get rid of this man. So verse 53, So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was truly to cause his own. The only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to bury himself. But again, that's the ministry of the Good Shepherd. He lays down his life for you. He laid down his life for you, that you may have life and may have it in abundance. And so to conclude, the application's already been made. Jesus has already said it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that whatever problem of sin that you face, that it's not the end? That God is not done with you yet? That this is not going to end in death? But that this, by the very power of God, could end for glory. For end for your betterment, for your good, as Joseph says, and actually could end in a way which God uses you to minister this great grace in his life. To come back to my, my problem of when I was saying with my parents' divorce, what God brought me to at the end of that, when he said I wasn't done yet, I didn't know what that meant, honestly. When he just kind of spoke that into my heart, I had no idea what that meant. But a couple months later, I did. And it was during summer camp at his hill. I told the students this, every single cabin that I had that summer, I had at least one boy who was either going through a divorce or whose parents were about to go through a divorce or they had already been divorced. And that was such a sweet summer of ministry. The enemy meant it for evil. God turns it for good. And not just for your good, but for the good of the others that are around us. That, my friends, is the power of God. Let's pray.